Between our first and last breath, our life is a series of seasons. Every high and low is a season that shapes us. So what season are you in? More than that, where can we find hope in every season? Jesus meets and leads us through every season. Well, Merry Christmas Eve! How we doing? God is good, amen? Amen. Well, Merry, Merry Christmas to you who are new. I'm so glad you're with us. If you don't know me, we haven't met yet. My name is Nolan. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Hey, can we do a a quick thing? Can we actually tell a little Christmas Eve story? Is that okay? Maybe after like the angels stop singing with us. Hey, so I was uh, 17 years old and I was hanging out at uh, Winco in the middle of the night getting energy drinks, which is what you do, right? And so uh, we're getting these energy drinks. And I remember we go outside uh, of Winco into the parking lot to get into my dad's uh, Ford Mustang, uh, which he should not have loaned us, by the way. And so we're getting into this car and right across from us is this lifted truck and a bunch of other dudes getting into that. Now, I don't know what was said between the two parties at some point, uh, but all I knew was like I was driving away and I could see in my rear view mirror that they were swerving and honking and like super angry. And so I'm like, what did you guys say to them? And they're like, we didn't say anything, bro. And I'm like, we are in a full-blown car chase at this point. And so now I'm like literally zooming up and down streets, like blowing red lights. We get on to Powell Street and I'm like, how am I going to get rid of these guys? And so I think to myself, I'm going to pull into this parking lot. We're going to loop around and like go out the exit on the other side and like get away. It's going to be perfect. Great plan, right? Only if there was an exit. (laughs) So I get in there and I'm like, wait a second. And so I start turning my car around really fast and that's when they confronted us. And they're literally blocking the only other way out. And so in this moment, I like, Look at me and the other guys in our car right now. And it's like me, in 17 years old, 140 pounds soaking wet, like my two out of shape skateboarder friends, and like our buddy, the stoner, who's a little bit high. <laughs> and I'm like, what are we gonna do right now? And uh, I look over across at their car, and out comes Aquaman. <laughs> and like all his thuggy friends who are shaped like Avengers. And so there's a guy in our car who literally has the nerve to say, well, I guess we got to fight these guys now. (laughs) Like, bro, look at us. We look like a scene out of Napoleon Dynamite right now. (laughs) We are not fighting them. And so I do the only rational thing left to do, uh, which was I noticed there was a gap between their car and the wall. And so uh, I began to pray. And I said, Jesus, please do not let me hit one of these very large dudes. And I put it into drive, and I rev the engine, and we go, and it's like, we get on a pal, and I zoom out of there and survive to tell this story. (laughs) You guys glad I didn't get killed by Aquaman? Me too, me too, me too. Well, here's the deal. What is it about chase stories like this? You guys love a good chase story? Like, why is it that, like, we so lean in on these moments Why is it that like Michael Bay spends literally millions of dollars on one chase scene in one of his movies? You guys know what I'm talking about? Chase scenes are these epic things, and I think they speak to the deep story that we're all longing for in Christmas. 
Because did you know that Christmas is literally the greatest chase story that has ever been told? That is what Christmas is all about. And here's what I mean. Christianity is the story from Genesis onward of how God has been chasing us down with the promise of his love in Jesus. And Christmas is that great fulfillment of how he has been chasing us and it is love incarnate himself coming down. And here's why that matters. Because so many of us come to church, and maybe you're new to Christianity, or or you've been a Christian for years, but you kind of have this framework where you are thinking that Christianity is about how good people chase down God's morals in order to go to heaven. But it is exactly the opposite. The story of Christianity is the story of how all of us broken people have been running from God, and God in his great love has been chasing after us. He has been chasing after us, and it culminates in the arrival of Jesus. And so what I want to do today is actually look at the Christmas story. If you have a Bible, would you actually open it up to Matthew chapter 2? If you uh, don't have a Bible, man, we'll, we'll have the verses on the screen. There's Bibles all around this church. You can actually take one of those. It's our gift to you. So Merry Christmas. Um, we love you. And this is maybe a lesser known Christmas story, maybe, maybe not the, the focal Christmas story that we think of. And I, I want to look at this, and I think the first thing we're going to see here, and I want you to tune in on this, is that God's promise is not a reward for the religious, but instead it is a light for those in darkness. God's promise is not a reward for the religious, but a light for those in darkness. Look at the text in verse 1. It says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now, the first group of people we see in this passage are these wise men. And when you think of the story of like Christmas and all the nativity scenes, like who are the figures that sort of come to your mind, at least at the center of that story? We often think of like Mary or Joseph or even baby Jesus, right? Uh, We we, we think of the angels or the shepherds. Uh, We even think of like the donkeys and like cattle, like they get a center stage in the story. But the wise men are always kind of like in the back here. But I want to actually zoom in on these guys because I think that they are significant to this story. Who are the wise men? Well, the word here for wise men is actually magi in the Greek, or where we get the word magi. It is actually this very interesting word where we, we ultimately get the word magician or, or magic, right? And so uh, why that's significant is because when you read wise men, do not think of like insiders to the people and the promise of God. Like these are not Old Testament like scholars or something and they're studying and they're coming in. These are not insiders to the promise of God, but outsiders. Uh, In fact, a better way to kind of frame who these wise men are is kind of think of them as like a mixture cross between uh, like a mad scientist and like like a new age guru or something like that, right? So this is like uh, maybe mixing Doc Brown from like Back to the Future and like Oprah. And so like there's like new age religions and all that stuff. Like that's who we're dealing with here. You guys tracking with that? And so these are the wise men. But what is so interesting about them? is they have this glimpse of the promise of God, right? And all they know, they don't, they're not like Old Testament scholars, they're outsiders. And all they have is they've heard these rumors of God's promise. 
And look, they're not insiders, but they still move towards it. And that's what's so beautiful about these wise men as we, as we look at their story. But here's why I think it matters for us. I actually want to suggest something today, that so many of us are actually more like these wise men than anybody else in the story. Maybe you came here today and you're like, I'm, I'm kind of not considered an insider at church. Maybe you even have a little like Christian background somewhere, but you wouldn't consider yourself like a, a churchy person. You're not like, you know, Mr. Bible Scholar. You would rather watch football on Sundays, or, or maybe you're just like more skeptical about the things of God and Christianity and all that. But what you do know is here at Christmas time, there's just something mysterious and interesting about this. Like we have these moments in our life where we're like, is there something more? And what I want to encourage you to do is like, if you identify with that, if that's you, like what if you did like these magi and rather than sort of like quieting that feeling, pressed into it this year. What if you said, man, is there something more out there? Uh, growing up, I was like not this churched up kid. I didn't take any of it seriously. And I was sort of like not interested in the Bible. And um, I remember, you know, being 15 years old or so, and like just not interested in it. But I do remember uh, there would be this certain time of year, of course, the holidays, when that would be on my mind. And there was this one specific experience that when it happened, that was the moment I leaned in. And I'll just ask you guys if you've experienced this. How many guys like grew up watching Charlie Brown? Charlie Brown? Yes. Okay. Nice fans of Charlie Brown. There's more hands raised for him than for Jesus. That's a little bit concerning. Um, but yeah, so like I love those Charlie Brown films. And how many of you guys remember like the 1965 Christmas edition of Charlie Brown? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, not enough of you guys know this. I want you to experience this with me. This is where we would lean in. Check this video out. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Everybody say, aww. Listen, if you don't get saved watching Charlie Brown, like, do you have a soul? I don't know. And so, like, as a kid, I'm watching this, and I literally remember being like, those were one of the moments that I felt like God was wooing me to himself. That as cute as it is, it's like Charlie Brown, but I'm literally going like, holy moly, what, what Linus is saying here actually has beauty and, like, majesty to it. There's some kind of mystery and poetry to this story, isn't there? where we're saying like, whatever you believe, the idea that there is God and that that God would humble himself and stoop to dwell among us, is there not some kind of like majestic poetry to that? And I would just suggest that if you are drawn into that story, like scratch at it more, like explore this, 
I would even invite you to come back in a couple of Sundays as we continue to explore Jesus. Now, here's the truth. Some of you guys are going to connect with that because you are drawn to the mystery and the magic of who Jesus is. And there's so much beauty there. But I want to show you in this text that it's not just poetry. Because for some of you, you're like, not drawn to that, right? You're like, okay, all this emotional nonsense and God, and sure, it's a cool story, but I need facts. Uh, Some of you are more cerebral like that, and I want to suggest to you that it's not just poetry. There's actually proof here in this text. Uh, Actually, let's look at the text as we continue on now, jumping down to verse 5. It says this, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What these magi were given is a promise, and here it is in the text. And what is this promise? It's saying from of old that there is coming this king, this ruler, and where is he going to be born? He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And I need you to see this because this is fascinating. This is not just a beautiful promise. This is a factual prophecy. And Matthew is going to stress over and over promise and fulfillment. Prophecy has been fulfilled over and over. Matthew 1.22 says this. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And 12 different times, Matthew is going to say this or something like this again and again. There's prophecy being fulfilled. Prophecy is being fulfilled. And he's trying to alert us to this in the story of Jesus. This is factual stuff. And I want you to really wrap your mind around this if you are that more cerebral, skeptical type. Because the truth is, there are numerous, like ancient prophecies, very specific prophecies that are all predating the birth of Jesus by centuries. And they are fulfilled in full detail at the historical event of his birth. This is significant for some of you. And I think this is really important because for those of you who are skeptical, I need you to see this, that Christianity is not a religion of blind faith, but it is a faith grounded in evidence. That's what we're talking about here. And so there's ration and there's reason, and I would encourage you to explore, to like dig into could this be reality? Um, There's this guy named uh, Francis Collins. Anybody know who that is? He is the scientist who is responsible for leading the team that mapped the human genome. And so this this is a monumental mind. And as a a young boy, they identified that he was brilliant. He came from a really intelligent family and all that, very smart parents. And so as he was going on into his early 20s, he's studying biology and training to be a doctor. And so uh, they actually had him serving all these very terminal patients. And so he's this very young man dealing with death over and over and over again. And so he, he's looking at people, and what he sees is this one particular older woman. And he is just drawn into her because he's seen this over and again, but he says to her, look, what is different about you? She kind of carried herself with this poise and this kind of like otherworldly inner buoyancy and joy, and there was a light about her. And, and he says, like, what is it with you? And she says to him, well, young man, it's, it's Jesus. He's like, oh, okay, like, Jesus, of course, Jesus. And she's like, son, what do you believe? And he pauses, and he's like puzzled there because he's like, nobody's ever asked me that. Like, I actually don't know what I believe. And so he goes on this search, 
And he's studying all this, these world religions and, and different philosophical things. And he finds himself at the house of a pastor who lived down the road. And he said, there's two things that are interesting about this pastor. One, he just found it fascinating in his own words that this pastor was willing to tolerate his blasphemous questions and just the patience of this guy. And then the second thing was that he handed him a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity, this Oxford scholar. And he's going through reason after reason for the faith. And he's learning things and just finding it very interesting that the universe, like it has a start, right? And there are all these very eloquent mathematical formulas that shaped reality and ultimately the ability for human beings to be and how history moves towards Jesus. And, And then he gets to Jesus and he finds that there is all this rational proof for Christianity. This is a very rational faith, but he also sees the poetry of the person of Jesus. And he's drawn in, and Francis Collins becomes a Christian. Now, this is significant in ways that I don't think we really realize. Like, for those of you who are skeptical, like I am by nature, and but many, many of you are, I want you to think about this. Like, in a thousand years from now, nobody will remember you or me, right? No one will be talking about us. Like, we're just gone. But in a thousand years from now, this Francis Collins is such a monumental mind that they will still be talking about him. This is the towering intellect of who we're dealing with here. But listen to me. He is a man who's saying there are reasons to believe in Jesus. He writes a book called The Language of God, and you can go through all of that stuff. And it's powerful because it's rational. And this is beautiful. God actually seeks to fulfill his prophecy rationally. But we also need to see here in the text, not only the rationality, not only the poetry, but actually how great lengths God is willing to go in order to fulfill his promise. And here's what we're going to see. There's going to be some monumental events in history that take place here. And what I want you to see is that God, man, he bends all things to fulfill his promise. Look at verse 3. It says this, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now jump down to verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Uh, So what is going on here? Uh, So we were introduced to the Magi, and now we meet another character, Herod. So, like, who is Herod? Well, Herod is a puppet king who was established by the empire of Rome over this region where God's people were living in Palestine, and he is this uh, just bloodthirsty, power-hungry tyrant who will stop at nothing to assert his throne. And so when he hears the rumors that these magi hear that there's this other king, baby king or whatever, he's like, hey, tell me where you find this king because I want to come worship him too. And what he's seeking to do is what? He wants to kill this baby king. He is, and I need you to see this, he thinks that he has the power to thwart God's promise. And actually, this is where the story gets really philosophically weird because every time he seeks to establish his throne by dethroning this baby Jesus, man, the means and methods he uses in order to thwart God's promise, this is weird, are the very means that God uses to fulfill his prophecy more fully. 
Here's what I mean. Um, so the other day I was sitting in uh, my car with one of our emerging leaders here and one of my really good friends, Jordan Fallman, here at the church. And we're going to go get coffee and, and hang out and all that stuff. And I just stopped because uh, I needed to talk to him about something pretty serious. And so I told him, um, you know, man, like, before we go, can I just confess, like, some stuff going on in my life? And Jordan's, like, the most relational guy ever. He's like, dude, of course. Like, he's just, I'm, I'm all ears. And so it's this kind of, like, holy moment. And I tell him, look, dude, I'm honestly really struggling with an addiction uh, to playing chess. And he looks at me, he's like, what? He's like, no way, bro. Like, I'm totally into chess right now, too. And we start getting, how many of you guys watch Queen's Gambit? Queen's Gambit fans? Okay. I watched like one episode and I was like reminded of how awesome chess is from my love for it in high school. And so we like dive into like geekdom. And so literally like this is where I'm at with chess in this point in my life. I'm like up late at night, eight YouTube videos deep, like memorizing chess openings and like studying middle game. And so like pray for my wife because... This is, this is like a serious addiction. So I'm like diving into chess and we're all excited about this. But what you will find as you like explore chess and like play different players and computer players and all this stuff is those who are better at chess, they actually use this tactic where they, um, they'll actually lure you in uh, in order to make you think that you are getting the advantage, right? But actually they are thinking six moves ahead and they're actually enticing you into a trap so that ultimately your pieces are entrapped and they're going to checkmate. Nerds in the house, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, cool. We'll hang out later, all two of us. <laughs> this is what we're talking about when we look at God's purposes with Herod. I want you to see how God actually maneuvers Herod here. Look at verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now look at this highlighted portion. Like see the fulfillment here. It says this, this was to what? To fulfill. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. He goes on, then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by these wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then what does it say? Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. What I need you to see is that Herod is a mere pawn in the hand of God. Herod is a mere pawn being moved for the ultimate checkmate. Now check this out. All of history bends, all of creation bends and, and is moved towards the promise of Jesus. And honestly, you guys, we could actually track uh, and study a bunch of history right now and see how not only according to the scriptures here, but actually all over history, this is really cool, that, that all over history we see God moving the events for the purpose of Jesus and his kingdom. And like, honestly, we do not have time for this, but like, I'm me, and so I want to take you on like a little nerd excursion, so we're going to do it anyway. Okay, 
so like even when you think about the cross, if you know like what the cross of Jesus is or even have some inkling about it, like there is a historic backdrop to the cross that is just fascinating. Like you can go study like the Assyrian and the Persian empires, how they were trying to seek to, you know, basically stop anyone who would come against their empires by de- uh, developing the perfect like torture system in this spike and impaling people on it saying like, don't mess with our throne here. And then ultimately the Greeks and Romans, they pick this up and you watch how they develop it farther and sort of perfect this torture instrument into what is the cross as we know it. And this is just fascinating because all of these kingdoms, they think that they are using this death instrument to establish their kingdoms, don't they? But what are they? They are ultimately only a pawn in the hands of God, creating an instrument that he would one day use to allow his son Jesus to be crucified. Not so their kingdoms would be established because no one even remembers them. Like you don't even think of Assyria or Persia or any of these things. But everybody knows the name of Jesus. And through that cross, he established his kingdom by allowing his son to be crucified in your place and for your sins. This is awesome. How God rules and reigns over history. We could do this all day. Literally, let's, let's now go to the Bible, right? You think about how the Bible works and all of the technologies in history. Let me tell you this, all the written technologies, they serve the end of advancing God's word. Like we could go into the Sinaitic region and explore how in those caves, there are these early etchings of the most ancient alphabetic system and how this is the very reason, uh, region where Moses would be born. And where Moses would speak Hebrew, and that language system is what becomes the Hebrew, uh, Hebraic alphabetic system. The very words of God are written in this, in that same region. And then you think about how scrolls work and how it would have been difficult to carry around multiple scrolls. We even see Paul in the Bible like struggling with like managing all these scrolls to get God's word out there. And so what's fascinating is there is a seaport in the region of Phoenicia, and, they, and it's, it's this port called Biblos. And at this port, they're distributing all these, um, you know, papyrus, which is paper beaten out of reed. And this technology develops into what they call a biblio. And what is a biblio? It's the earliest books and where before it would have been difficult to carry around all these like different documents. It all by the closing of the New Testament. By the closing of the New Testament, there is now this technology where you can carry around multiple books in one easy place. And we see the gospel explode. How good is God? You study history and mark my words, there is not a molecule in creation that escapes serving the purpose of God's promise. How good is God? You can praise him. This is God's authority. This is God's promise. And he does it all that you would engage that promise in the person of Jesus. Listen, If it's true of all of creation, if it's true of all of history, like it's also true in your life. Let me ask you this question. What in your life actually feels outside of God's plan for you? Like what feels like it's just outside of God's control? We've been going through this series talking about various seasons. Is it a season of isolation? of sorrow, depression, grief, loss, anger, conflict in your relationships. Can I just tell you something? 
that no matter how painful the circumstances you are going through right now, God is weaving it together to bring about the promise of Jesus' presence in your life. Believer who is struggling, can I just tell you that all of these pains and trials that you are going through right now are actually God's hand weaving the events together for spiritual formation in you. He wants to bring about life. He wants to bring about depth. That's what he's doing in you. And for those of you here who uh, you're not into Christianity, Bible, Jesus, like these are foreign ideas for you. Can I just say this? That the fact that you are here right now is part of God's weaving his plan that you would encounter his promise. That's why you are here tonight. As a matter of fact, um, I want you to think about this. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If God is working all things good, and God is moving you towards his promise, we see that the creation itself here in a moment is going to bend in God's promise, right? We see this star, this star that sort of hovers over Jesus' place of birth. And like the creation bends to Jesus. And the events of history bow to Jesus. But this is the question. Like, do you bow to Jesus? Like, have you received his promise? Do you actually know Jesus? I want you to see how these magi respond as we close. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose. And this is beautiful. This is a great light in heaven. This is God bending creation. In a moment, we're actually going to hand out candles. And what these candles represent is a clinging to this promise. The star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced, now notice this, exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Listen, they see the promised Jesus with their own eyes. And what do they do? They bow down and they worship him. They rejoice with exceedingly great joy. Have you received this promise? Um, So I said that I was this kid that wasn't super churched up. I was not about Bible and all this stuff, uh, but there were certainly people praying for me. Um, I had friends praying for me. My mom used to pray for me, and uh, she still does, I'm sure. Um, but my, my grandma was one of the ones that I just distinctly remember praying over my life. Um, and she was this charismatic old woman just praying for me. All- Anybody have like a charismatic old woman in their life? You just like, like, you know that you're getting prayed for, right? And she used to pray for me in a tongue, like regularly, if you know what that is. Like she just praying, it was very powerful. I mean, to this day, I can still see her praying, right? Um, I have an inbox in one of my old emails that's just full of the prayers that she would send for me. She was praying over my life, clinging to the promises in my life. And uh, my grandma actually passed away recently. And uh, it worked out to where my family was able to actually sell uh, my wife and I her house. And so we, we actually live in her house now. And what's crazy about this is it's this beautiful house. It's this awesome memory and it's, it's powerful. 
And for my wife, we're like remodeling and all this stuff, up late, working on tile and different things. And for her, it's like, I know this is nostalgic for you, but this is just like an awesome space. But for me, there are certain days where literally I'm walking around looking at the rooms in this house, and I can still see where my grandma prayed. Like I can still kind of hear her prayers, so to speak, where she would be with her Bible open, praying the promises over my life. And, and, and I'm raising my kids in this house where we're almost swimming in the place of prayer, where someone clung to the promise for me. Let me tell you something. Some of you guys don't even realize when you walked through those doors, the ocean of prayer that you walked through. Some of you guys don't realize all of the ways that someone has been clinging to the promise for you, praying over your life, and even the fact that you're here is a clinging to that promise. And I just invite you to receive him today. Can I invite you to believe on the promise to Jesus in your life? What we're gonna do in a moment is we are going to have baptisms. And what baptism is, as people enter the waters, symbolizes their death to their old life. And as they come out of the waters, it symbolizes their new life in Jesus who died for them and rose. And man, uh, some of you guys literally today need to get up out of your seat and believe on Jesus and be baptized like tonight. And if you're not perfect, like I need you to know this, like welcome to the club. We don't baptize any perfect people. We only baptize people who want to believe upon a perfect savior. And if that's you, can I just encourage you to go to the back? We have literally everything you need. Like just bring yourself, go over to the response room and just let them know you want to be baptized like tonight. Or if you're a believer who's never been baptized, get up and let's get you baptized tonight. Amen. This is going to be awesome. And for all of us, as you cling to this candle, remember to cling to the promise of God in the midst of whatever circumstance you're going through. He's chased after you. Let's pray. Jesus, in the sacred and holy space, I pray that right now we would be clingers to the promise, that we would respond to the great chase of God, and that tonight we would see Jesus elevated and enthroned and using all of our circumstances to bring us here, to bring us before him, and that we would encounter you in this holy and sacred space. And all God's people said,